Turn your Bibles to the New Testament. We're going to be in 1 Peter today, chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. If you're able, would you stand please for the reading of God's Word? 1 Peter chapter 1, I'm going to begin in verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls." This is the Word of God. Thanks be to God. And you can be seated. From this passage this morning, I'll preach from the title, The Habit of Hope. We're closing out our series on the resurrection life today. This is the last Sunday of the Easter season. Next Sunday will be Pentecost, where we celebrate the gift of the Holy Spirit. We'll do that on our anniversary service. Over these weeks, we've looked at some of the different ways that the resurrection of Jesus Christ impacts how we live today. We've looked at justice and mission, family, our bodies, and work. And today, we end with hope. Hope can be a tricky topic. At times, we feel desperate for it. At other times, some of us can feel pretty cynical about how hopeful we should actually be. The Christians, the early church that Peter was writing to, may have also struggled with this concept of hope. They knew about Christ's resurrection. That's why they were Christians. But that future hope had not arrived yet. The the promised day of salvation when all would be made new at Christ's return had had not come yet. Their salvation was still being worked out in the everyday stuff of life. Not only that, but their faith didn't insulate them from suffering. If anything, it seemed that their faith in Jesus made them more susceptible to suffering. Does anybody know about that? Would the trials that came with their faith end up overwhelming the hope of the resurrection? And so in these verses, at the very beginning of his letter, the Apostle Peter called the church to rejoice because their faithful suffering proved God's salvation. I want to confess that this is a difficult topic for me to preach about. There's a lot of suffering in our world, as Pastor Michelle alluded to in her prayer. And frankly, there's a lot of suffering in this room. And some we know about. And some of the suffering represented here is held quietly and tenderly. It's difficult to speak a word about hope. A word about hope in the midst of suffering. 
without sliding into cheap cliches or worse, communicating that somehow we deserve our suffering or that God intended us to suffer for some reason. It's a difficult topic, and yet there's no mistaking the fact that hope is one of the results of the resurrection that the Scriptures point to again and again and again. And so this morning, just for a few minutes, no matter the trials or the griefs that each of us bear today, here's what I'm praying that we will believe. Hope becomes a habit when we understand that the resurrection redeems our suffering. Hope can become a habit when we understand that the resurrection redeems our suffering. To understand how it is that the resurrection redeems our suffering, we need to see how the resurrection does three things. How it covers our past, how it secures our future, and how it redefines our present. So we'll begin with this. The resurrection redeems your suffering by covering your past. Now, I'm not just kind of doing this past, future, or present thing because it's cute. It's actually what Peter does in this passage. He begins by looking back. In his great mercy, God has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Has given us. This is a past tense event. Peter is pointing to the historical reality of the resurrection, a thing that happened in time and in place that can be looked back to in hope. This is why the early Christians gave their faith and allegiance to Jesus Christ. Most of the people that Peter was writing to had never met Jesus in the flesh, but they believed that Jesus had risen from the dead. Why else would you follow a crucified Messiah? He would have been a failure. No reason to put your hope and your trust in that kind of a Messiah. And yet the claim was made that Jesus had risen from the dead and this reoriented everything. They looked back to this finished event in history. And we know about this. We do this, I think, most of us who've placed our faith in Jesus. We think about the resurrection of Jesus as something that happened a long time ago that we can look back to with some hope and some assurance. We understand the pastness of the resurrection. But I would imagine that most of us limit the pastness of the resurrection to a fact in history. Which is to say, we don't apply the pastness of the resurrection to our own lives. We exempt ourselves from the past tenseness of the resurrection. What do I mean? There's plenty of us in here today who believe in the resurrection and yet who still drag our pasts around with us. There are plenty of us here today who would stake everything in our belief on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and yet we still find ourselves defined by our pasts. We've limited the past tense nature of the resurrection to a point in history without ever applying it to our own lives. But what does Peter say? He says we've been rescued into a new birth, into a living hope. The Apostle Paul puts it slightly differently in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and 17. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. 
The old has gone and the new is here. Paul and Peter are making the same point that as a result of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our pasts are covered. The resurrection redeems your past, redeems your suffering by covering your past. Let's make a distinction here. The suffering you've experienced in this life matters. It's significant. The trials that you face, the testings that you face, the losses that you remember, these things matter. They count. They cannot be swept under the rug. The distinction here is that those things no longer define you. Amen? Amen. That though you have known suffering, it no longer defines you. That though you have known loss, it no longer defines you. That though you've been sinned against and sinned against others, in Jesus Christ, you're no longer defined by these things. Amen? Amen. You and I have been born into a new and a living hope. It's a little hard to see this slide. Bear with me. But that's my two sons. That's Elliot and Winston. Any, any kids who are in the room, make sure to look up at the screen and see if you can tell what's going on here, what they're, what they're looking at. A couple of months ago, we got a package in the mail and it had a, a, a net in it. And it had this little container of some little caterpillars. And so Maggie and the boys set up the net and put the little caterpillars in there in that, in that uh, jar, had some caterpillar food. I don't know what caterpillar food is, but they liked it. They ate a lot of it. And after a few days, Jayla, you know what happened after a few days? Butterfly. What did they have to do first, though? Chrysalis. Chrysalis. <laughs> Which for the unscientific among us is a cocoon. The caterpillars, they make cocoons and they attach themselves to these branches that Maggie and the boys had put in there. And we waited a few more days and then they started to quiver a little bit and bulge and then they eventually opened up and there were the butterflies, painted lady butterflies to be specific. Now I know this metaphor is maybe a bit cheesy for some of you. But but I want to suggest that, that this is what the resurrection is meant to do to our past. Yes, there's a continuity with where you've been. There's a continuity with the suffering that you've experienced and the losses that you have known. There's absolutely a continuity in the same way that there's DNA from that caterpillar in that butterfly. But when you look at that painted lady butterfly, it is a new creation. It looks almost nothing like what came in the mail that we put in that net. This is how the resurrection covers our past. It doesn't obliterate your story, but it covers your losses. And it puts forth the new creation in Jesus Christ. Christians sometimes say that we are born again in Jesus. And I'm afraid that we've heard that phrase so often that it's lost all of its power. To say that we are born again is a radical statement about who and what has power over us. You see... Your past, your losses, your sins still seek to define you, still seek to claim you. When we say that we are born again, we are saying that nothing in our past has any authority over us any longer. Amen? And we are new creations in Jesus Christ. I want to suggest, I want to ask you this morning that 
if you find yourselves still defined by your past, that it's time to leave that behind. And I know that's easier said than done. But at the very least, what I want you to hear very clearly from me this morning is that you don't have to be defined by your past. That for Christian people, it's not normal to be defined and claimed by our past losses, griefs, trials, and sufferings. Amen? Amen. That those have been covered by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so what I want to invite you this morning is if you still find yourself in that stuck place, in that defined place, During communion, I want to ask you to come to the cross. I want to ask you to come to one of the prayer ministers and ask specifically that you would understand how the resurrection of Jesus covers all of your trials, all of your losses, all of your griefs. Amen? Amen. Okay. The second thing that I want us to see is that the resurrection redeems our suffering by securing our future. I put my slides a little out of order here. Here we go. So Peter now turns our attention ahead. He says, this inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is to be revealed in the last time. He shifts our attention forward using this metaphor of an inheritance. And what is the inheritance? The inheritance is our life together with God in his kingdom forever. This is an inheritance that Peter says can never perish, spoil, or fade, which I realize to us doesn't sound that important. But in Peter's day, it would have been really important because the last thing you want to do is wait your entire life for an inheritance and then to open up, I don't know how you keep like a chest or a thing, and it's, it's just it's dissolved, it's crumbled, it's blown away, your inheritance gone. This would have been a common problem in Peter's day. We might say an inheritance that, that could never be devalued, a 401k that could never be devalued, that, that could never be stolen from you. This is a, a permanent inheritance. This is an inheritance that will be there for us. We can trust and know that it will exist for us. This inheritance is, Peter says, our salvation. And when you and I hear that word salvation, we tend to think of the present tense, of the fact that we said yes to Jesus and so now experience his salvation. But Peter wants us also to to imagine the future tense of our salvation, the coming of the salvation. You have been saved if you placed your faith in Jesus and you are waiting for your salvation. This should not be a hard thing for us to get our minds around. When we look around the world today, we see plenty of needs for salvation. Amen? Plenty of broken places, hurting places, sin-wracked places. We wait the coming of the salvation. But the Bible says that Jesus' resurrection guarantees our resurrection one day. That Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits guaranteeing that we too will be raised in the body in glory one day. A day when sin will be judged finally. When evil will be defeated finally. And when all suffering will be quenched forever. Amen? Julian of Norwich, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, looked forward to that day, and she said, in that day when our hope is fulfilled, all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. We run out of words trying to describe what it will look like for that hope to be consummated, for that hope to be made eternal. 
for us to know the beauty of that salvation for all of eternity. So this morning, I ask you to consider your past and the way the resurrection has covered your past, but to also look ahead with hope, knowing that your hope has been secured. Having said that, and before we look to the third point, I also want to admit that this was a hard point for me this week, that I preached this with an extra amount of faith because I didn't feel this thing all that strongly this week. A few weeks ago, uh, Pastor Betty Rendon was arrested for deportation. Her daughter, who's covered by DACA status, was pulled over in Wisconsin, put into an unmarked immigration detention vehicle, and then tricked into bringing those officials to her parents' home, who then walked in the door and arrested both her mom, Pastor Betty, and her father. The, these, this family had fled from Colombia years ago, away from violence, but very specifically out of violence targeted at their family. They bought a home here on the south side. She'd gone to seminary and was pastoring a church in Wisconsin. And we gathered on Tuesday night for a prayer vigil, and we learned as we came into the prayer vigil that she had, they had already been deported that day. They'd been deported back to Colombia. And I spent some of this week trying to get people to care about this story. Trying to get my fellow clergy to care about this story. To get people in our denomination to care about the story. And if I can be really honest with you, most of the time it felt like spitting into the wind. You, you may be a couple of, of likes on Facebook. But no, no real compulsion to see how it is that the very body of Christ is being torn apart in a moment like this. To see how when one suffers, we are all suffering. And so I think about this kind of hope, and I struggle with it a little bit, if I'm very honest with you today. But what, I, what I'm realizing is that, that that diminishes nothing from the future nature of our hope. That in fact, the saints throughout history have had plenty of moments just like this, where it's absolutely unclear that good will win the day, that justice will win the day where there's all kinds of moments and seasons where it appears as though the wicked will continue to rule, where injustice will continue to flourish and prosper. And in those moments, the saints have always looked to their future hope. The saints of God have always done what Peter does in this letter and shift their attention to the day of our salvation when all shall be well and all shall be well and all will be made well. And we do this as a Christian people not to distract ourselves from the evil in our day, from the suffering in our day. We look forward in hope as our compass. Somebody say amen if with you're with me. We look forward into the future not to distract ourselves from the circumstances of our moment, but to remind ourselves of how we live in the midst of suffering and grief and injustice and wickedness. Are you with me? So look forward to the day of your salvation. Look forward to the day when the resurrection will make all well for all of eternity. And then use that as your orientation for how you live in the midst of great uncertainty, confusion, and even suffering today. Finally, the resurrection redeems your suffering by redefining your present. Peter spends the bulk of this section talking about today. How do we live today? 
How do we live in the midst of suffering today? How does hope orient us today? And I actually think that's the hardest one of them all. It's a little bit easy to kind of theoretically look back into the past and say, yes, I see what the resurrection has done for me. We can even look forward into the future and say, I long for that day. I hope for that day. But what about today in the middle of whatever the stuff is that you're going through? How is it that the resurrection redefines your present today? Because we wake up to read about deportations, mass shootings in Virginia, and on and on. How, how, how? There's a sequence here that Peter walks us through. He starts by saying, In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you've had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Peter starts by acknowledging the church's suffering. And that might seem a small thing, but it's an important thing for some of you to hear today. Jesus acknowledges the the suffering that you've experienced. Jesus acknowledges the trials you've experienced, the losses you've felt. Jesus acknowledges the way that you have been sinned against. Do not let anybody sweep those things under the rug. Do not let anybody over-spiritualize those things in your life. Do not let anybody shift your story very quickly to their own story. Are you, you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. And don't do that to anybody else. Peter makes sure that the Christians in those cities, in those regions, understood that Jesus understood and saw their suffering. And then in verse 7, these have come these trials, these moments of suffering, so that the proven genuineness of your faith may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. This is the crux. This is the, this is the, the, the critical point for this, this, this view of our present experience of suffering and hope. Peter says very simply, those moments of suffering, those moments of trial, those moments of grief, Prove the genuineness of your faith. Peter says, this is how our present day sufferings are redeemed, in that they prove the genuineness of your faith. Please stay with me on this. Please don't miss this. God does not desire your suffering. God is a good God. God does not heap suffering onto you. God does not make you specifically vulnerable to certain kinds of sin. God does not take any delight in the trials that you have faced. That is not how the redemption of suffering works. When you're suffering and somebody comes alongside you and said, well, I guess God intended for you to... No, 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 no. We live in a broken world. We live in a sinful world. We live in a world where there is suffering, but never mistake that reality for the heart of God. What Peter says is that the redemption of our suffering comes in the way that suffering and trials can prove the genuineness of our faith. Okay, let me, let me, let me say it this way. I have this theory it's not scientific. That everybody in this room has one of two different kryptonites. Do you know what I mean when I say kryptonite? Like your vulnerability, right? Superman, you have a kryptonite. Everybody here has one of two kryptonites. It's either sleepiness or hunger. I categorize all of humanity into these two camps. I am not vulnerable to hunger. I get hungry. I want to eat. My stomach growls. But I can be okay. I'm not going to turn into a mean person if I'm hungry. If I'm sleepy, 
totally different story. Yeah. Completely different story. Yeah. Yeah. Okay? I'm not going to tell you what my wife's is. I'm going to let you diagnose yourself. But my theory, everybody, we all have, but here's the thing. Who I really am gets revealed when I'm really tired. Like, I don't turn into a different person. That's the person I always am. I'm just, I just not strong enough to keep up the stuff, right? Same for some of you when you get hungry. I got a friend who gets hungry, and he's so sanctified, he knows he just can't talk to anybody when he's hungry. So if you see my friend and he's hungry, he's just going to be standing over here just like this until someone puts some food in his mouth. So that's sanctification in his life. This is growing in the grace of Jesus. Peter says that suffering proves the genuineness of our faith. That suffering, that trials prove the reality, the nature of our faith. And that this is how our sufferings are redeemed. Not because the sufferings in themselves are good but because of what they can do for our faith. Say amen if you're tracking with me. Again, the evil, sin, brokenness, sickness in this world that leads to suffering, that is always not of God. And I know this because in the new creation, these things will all have been defeated. But the resurrection redeems our suffering by redefining our present. Your suffering does not define you. Your faith is what defines you. Your faith in the Savior who took on all of your trials, who faced all of your temptations, who submitted to all of your sufferings, faith in this Savior who defeated the devil, who woke up from death, and who resurrected over sin. That's what defines you. And that's what's refined in the furnace of trials and sufferings. On the cross of Jesus, we have seen the true identity of our suffering Savior. He was not an imposter. He was not a fraud. In the center of suffering, the faithful one revealed to the entire universe who he was. The Son of God who came not to inflict suffering upon sinners, but to take sinners' sufferings onto himself. And I want, you to, I, I want to say that again. Because some of us have gotten that backwards. Some of our view of God has gotten that backwards. Jesus came not to inflict suffering onto sinners, but to take sinners' suffering onto himself. See, I don't think you're hearing that because that's really good. Jesus came not to inflict suffering onto those of us who in in reality deserve some kind of suffering. Amen? Amen? But instead to take our suffering onto himself. promise of the resurrection is that that can be true for you as well. Your faith is more precious than gold because your faith has been placed in the resurrected Son of God. Your faith will be refined and revealed in those moments of trial and testing. Your faith will be unveiled and unleashed when suffering comes. Some of you know this about me. I'm going to just disclose this in case you're ever in a moment of suffering and you come to me. I'm just going to tell you that one of the first things I'm going to say to you is going to sound very unpastoral and not very Christian. And some of you have had this experience with me. I'm going to say, I cannot wait to see what God does in your life through this. And I know that's, (laughs) 
I'll say nice things too. Like I'll be, I'll try to be compassionate, empathetic. But I have seen people's faith grow time and time and time again. And it's almost never when everything's okay. It's almost never when you're just cruising along and everything's great at work and everything's great at school and everything's great at home in the family. It's almost always in the crucible of some kind of a wilderness experience. And so forgive me, but when you come to me in that moment, I'm going to smile a little bit. And I'm going to be a little bit excited because I believe that in that moment, your faith is going to be refined and revealed. And it's going to grow into something greater than you've ever known. What trial are you facing today? What suffering are you carrying in your body today? The resurrection redefines these present moments in your lives. Whatever you are facing will not defeat you or destroy you. The power of the resurrected Jesus in you means that these temporary trials will prove the genuineness of your faith. A faith in one day one day will burst into a source of praise and glory and honor. Here's my conclusion, and then we'll come up to the table together. Hope becomes a habit when we understand that the resurrection redeems our suffering. Your past, covered. Your future, secure. Your present experience of trials and suffering, redefined. Nothing about where you've been, about where you are or about where you're going is unaffected by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which means that you can face the great and inevitable struggles of this broken world and your sin-prone heart and not be overcome. Thanks be to God. So rather than being defined by your trials, by your griefs, by your unfulfilled longings, hope will become your disposition in this life. Hope will become your habit in this life. That's the gospel's promise for you and I today. Your hope is anchored to something stronger than your circumstances, even your hardest circumstances. So you can claim the inexpressible in Peter's words and glorious joy that is yours. Why? Because we are receiving the end result of our faith the salvation of our souls. Amen? Jesus, we thank you for resurrecting over sin and death and the devil. We thank you on this day that you have not left our pasts as they were, that you have not abandoned us to the randomness of our futures, that you have not left us to figure out today's sufferings and trials on our own. Lord Jesus, through the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray that your resurrection would give us great hope today. I pray that your Spirit would be precise in us today to bring the resurrection to bear into those places of greatest struggle, of greatest sin, greatest trial and even suffering. And would we find in those places today hope, a hope that cannot be taken from us. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.